as a kid, there were some things that took place. You know, I mean, um, listen, I, my dad was a pastor. Uh, there were five of us kids. My mom and dad, there were seven of us. He pastored churches in little towns in Oregon, and um, they didn't pay him a lot. Matter of fact, they hardly paid him anything at all. Uh, and yet, the Lord provided. And yet, my dad did some stuff that kind of messed me up for life. And it's not a bad thing. It's actually a pretty good thing because um, he, he made homemade ice cream. Delicious homemade ice cream. I think it's the best thing you can have is homemade ice cream. A steak and a big pile of homemade ice cream. Awesome. <laughs> so, you know, we grew up on homemade ice cream, except for those rare occasions when my dad would either take us to a creamery where they made ice cream and we'd get to have some of that. Or we would buy that ice cream out of the store. But there were only two kinds of ice cream my parents would ever bring home from the store for us to to eat. And we lived in in Oregon. And it was either Tillamook ice cream, which you can get at your local Safeway store, or Umqua ice cream, which is now also at your local Safeway store. And I'm going to tell you something about Tillamook and uh, Umqua ice cream. They're delicious. I can eat a whole bucket by myself. (laughs) And you're probably going, no kidding. The other thing my dad did was he would make homemade root beer. Get a little Hires root beer starter kit, and we would make root beer. We would bottle it, put the caps on it, put it off into a dark room, wait the 21 or 23 days, whatever it was. I could hardly wait for that long. But there was the root beer in there. And so the great glorious day is when we had homemade ice cream and homemade root beer combined in this thing called a root beer float. That is magnificent. Now, I'm going to tell you something that's really quite depressing for me is when I get Sure Shine imitation ice cream along with Diet Fanta root beer combined. <laughs> it's a disappointment, isn't it? I mean, you agree with me, right? I mean, that just does not... It's still called a root beer float, but it is not the real McCoy. It's not the real deal. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, So what does that have to do with our study in 1 John? Well, we're going to look at our verse, and then I'm going to connect the dots from homemade ice cream, homemade homemade root beer, to 1 John. Now, don't fall asleep as I read our passage to you this morning. Here we go, 1 John 5.21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. I know what you're thinking. How in the world is Pastor Ken going to preach a whole sermon on six words in an hour? Watch me. (laughs) Hang on. No, here's what I want to do. I want you to... The the point that John's making with this verse and uh, my dissertation about homemade ice cream and homemade root beer, here's how we connect those two dots. Accept no substitute. No substitutes. That's what John is saying when he says, keep yourselves from idols. Or... What he, I, the intent that he's saying behind it is keep yourselves from worshiping idols because that's a bigger issue. And so, you know, what we don't want to do is, is give in to the thing that is most handy that is a substitute and is a poor substitute at that. And, and so when we take a look at this verse, the question we have to ask is, why is that the way that John finishes the letter? Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Period. The end. I mean, that's all he says. He doesn't say adios. 
He doesn't say anything. That's all he says. So why does he say that? Why does he put that at the end of his letter to the church? Two major reasons. The first one, and foremost, is the heart of a human being is an idol factory. We produce idols in our hearts, in a heartbeat. We do it all the time. And sometimes, and probably most of the times, we may not even be aware that we're producing an idol in our heart. We're doing stuff that is, is counterproductive to our relationship with God. And, you know, the, the um, Old Testament prophets had to deal with this heart issue forever. It's been going on ever since the creation of man. that We create these idols. Matter of fact, in Jeremiah, God had this to say. The heart is desperate or deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And so what God is telling us is that our heart, at its default mode, is wicked, it's sick, and it, it, has, it has nothing good that's going to come out of it on its own. It, in its natural condition, it is deceitful. If you want to know what really is in the heart of a person, a man or a woman, if you want to get to know them, you spend time with them on all kinds of levels. You spend time with them when they're putting on their best face for you. They have you over for dinner. Everything's going smoothly. The kids are all behaving And then you spend time with them when everything's falling apart and you get to see them at their best and you get to see them at their worst and you get to see them all the places in between that. Because when you spend time with another person, man or woman, what will happen is their heart will reveal to you who they really are. God told us that. That's what God says. When when, when God was also using... Ezekiel, another prophet, here's what he said through Ezekiel to Ezekiel. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts and they set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Now here's what what God was doing. He was using Ezekiel as a mouthpiece to speak to the nation of Israel. But more specifically with this verse, what he's talking about to them is he's He's talking about the elders or the leaders of Israel. And what they've done is is that they didn't have these idols of wood and stone and gold and, and all the rest of that stacked up outside their home or inside their houses. What they had done is they had taken and made an idol of something in their heart. It wasn't visible to the human eye. But God says, I'm going to reveal that to you. I'm going to let you see what it is. God exposes the idols that we have in our lives, just like he did with these men. He exposed the idol that these these guys had in their lives. Now, King David, the guy that, that God says, he's a man after my own heart, he wrote songs, worship songs that they would sing at the temple. We know them as psalms. And basically, if you look in the, in the book of Psalms, you will see they put all those Psalms to music. And so David, get this, he, he writes this, 
this psalm. And, and he knows that when people have an encounter with God that's genuine, it changes them. Because now out of their heart flows this praise and worship and adoration of a great God. But what David also knows is that when somebody participates in idolatry and they make their own idols, their worship then is something that is lacking uh, life, if I can put it that way. And so here's David's observation about idolatry. Psalm 115. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in idols. You see, what, what David is, is saying here is, is that when, when we worship something other than the living God, whatever that other something is, it's going to take us to a place where we are no longer giving God our authentic, our heart, <laughs> our true heart. God wants your heart's affections above everything else. He doesn't want second best. He doesn't want the leftovers. He doesn't want you to bring to him just a smidgen of what you've got. He wants it all, and he wants it all right now, all the time. But what we do is we set up idols. People make idols that have nothing. They give us nothing, and they're destructive. Now, the second reason that John gave the warning is that the church he was ministering to, which was the Ephesus church, they had idols, so to speak, right in their backyard. Because Ephesus was a a Roman town. It was probably third or fourth largest Roman city. And Ephesus had this huge temple to the goddess Diana. She was a fertility god. And and the worship of Diana was, was absolutely unbelievable. Matter of fact, they really thought that she resided in the temple. And get this, this is their temple that they built for this goddess made out of stone or metal or whatever it was. It's a, it, the temple took 200 years to complete. It was 420 feet long, 220 feet wide. And the, the majestic ionic pillars soared 60 feet into the air that held up the colonnade and the roof. Of this place, and right smack dab in the middle of this temple is this huge statue of their perversion of Diana, the goddess of fertility, draped in a veil of Persian silk. And at the time John was writing this letter, the worship of Diana was at an all time fevered pitch. They were crazy about it. It was, it was ridiculous, the things that were going on. Matter of fact, if you go back into the uh, Gospel of Acts and you look at chapter 19, what you'll see is you're going to find Paul. He's, going, he's in Ephesus because he's the one that planted this church that John's ministering to. 
And so he's in Ephesus with the church, and they're having these debates, and he wants to go into the temple of Diana and have a debate with the worshipers of, of Diana. But the problem is, is that he's already caused people to be a little bit more than unhappy with him, and his, the people that were with him kept going like, we're not going to let you go in there, because if you go in there, they're going to pull out some big old rocks, and they're going to smash your head with them, and we don't want that to happen. And so let's not go in there. But it, the, it was crazy what was going on. The thing that I think is going to help us is that if we remember just what John has been saying to the church in this letter, he's not just saying it to the church then and there, He's saying it to the church here and now. And it's the same thing. And so let me remind you what he says. At the top of the list is the priority and preeminence of Jesus as the Son of God and the necessity to be rightly related to him for the forgiveness of sin. That statement, that thing that John was bringing out for every person to understand about Jesus is the thing that's going to be the foundation for everything else in this life and the next. You can't get to the next life without it. You can get to the next death, but not the next life. And for John, Jesus is the real thing. And anything and everything else, if it is substituted for Jesus, is just an idol. The biblical concept of idolatry consists in that which is not only cultural, but intellectual, social, and spiritual. People in Scripture said to do a number of things with idols. Here's what what idol worshipers or idolaters do. They love idols, they trust idols, and obey idols, and serve idols. And, and, And as we think about that, that's why John came and said to us, Now, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, When God, in his grand scheme of things, sent Moses to to have his people released from the slavery of Pharaoh in Egypt, God did all these miracles, ten, we know, ten plagues, and finally um, Pharaoh released the Hebrew children to leave and go to the promised land. And so God has all these people. Now listen, they have been under the influence of Egypt for 430 years. And in that influence over the 430 years, they watched a bunch of crazy idol worship going on. So what God didn't want to have happen was for them to think that this whole thing was was the production that God wanted from them in regards to the whole worship of himself. And so what he did is he took his servant Moses and he said to Moses, I want you to come up on the mountain because I'm going to give you 10 laws, commandments, that if my children obey these things, we're going to have this great and wonderful relationship. And so Moses says, okay, I'll do that. And so Moses, what does he do? He goes up on the mountain to get the 10 commandments from God. While he's up on the mountain with God, receiving the 10 commandments, the people three million of them, they get a little bit impatient and restless, and so they convince Moses' brother Aaron that they should make a golden calf, that they should worship this thing. And so while (laughs) Moses is getting the commandments, 
And everybody back down at the base of the mountain, they're going crazy on this stupid idol worship over a golden calf. And when Moses comes down, he's going like, what have you done? You've lost your minds. Are you really that, that silly that you would think that's what's going to happen? And so let me just, here's what God said. Here's the first two commandments that he gave Israel and said, obey them. All you have to do is obey them. Here's what they are, found in Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. That's number one. No other gods before me. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Get it. Is what God... Listen, we're, we're under the new covenant doesn't disqualify the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled the old covenant, made it perfect. But what we need to, to realize here is what God says is that for those people who love me, my blessing is going to be on them and their families for a thousand generations. God doesn't exaggerate. I'm telling you right now. He does not exaggerate. He tells you the way it is, straight up. But he says for those people who hate him, who hates God, people who worship other things. They hate God. Because if they didn't hate God, they wouldn't be worshiping Him. And He says, My, I will, I will curse them for the next three or four generations. I'll put it to their next, to their children, to their children's children, to their grandchildren, to their great-grandchildren. You don't want that for your kids? Israel was like, no, we don't want that to happen to our kids. And yet God gave this profound commandment that they're, all they're supposed to do is just, God's just saying, make me first place. Don't try and find some substitute that you think will do for you what only I can do for you. Don't be looking around at what other people are doing. Don't be trying to imitate the world and copy them because if you don't love me with all of your being and you're going to do what they're doing, you're worshiping something else, and that's an idol, and it will never produce for you what you think it will produce. God didn't want Israel to think that what the Egyptians had done in worship was acceptable to him, because it was not. And so he's just simply saying, here's a, a simple commandment. It's not that hard to obey. You know, don't bow down to a, a golden calf. Don't find an Asherah pole and carve it. Don't find a rock, a pile of rocks, and worship that. Just worship me. I am the living God. That's all you have to do. That's all you have to do. It's simple. It's not that hard, right? We can obey that, right? Right? No. Because after 40 years of wandering around in the desert and Moses reminding them and Aaron reminding them of the law of God, when God sent them into the promised land, after 40 years, God sent them into the promised land and he specifically said, here are the nations I want you to annihilate. Do you know what annihilate means? 
It means to wipe them out. Don't leave anything behind. Don't, I want you to wipe out every man, woman, child, cow, goat, sheep, camel, dog, cat. Annihilate them all. I don't want any of that stuff because it is all defiled by Satan. And then he said, here are the nations I want you to chase out of the promised land. I don't want them to ever inhabit any part of this promised land. And you're going to have to build a wall around Israel to keep them out with swords and spears and arrows. And Israel said, oh, okay. Well, we'll do that with everybody except let's just say the the Canaanites. Let's just leave them in the country because, after all, they're really nice neighbors. They're they, you know, they have good hearts. They mean well. And so Israel didn't do what God required with the Canaanites, and he left them. And the problem is, is that, that the influence of the Canaanites, and there were some other countries that got their way back into the country, into Israel. And the problem is, is that the Israelites... Let their corruption, their idolatry seep into their own homes. And the next thing you know, the Israelites are all worshiping foreign, and, uh, foreign gods, idols that have been made by the hands of men. They're not real. They're imitations. They're not the, the, the real McCoy. And so God punishes Israel. I mean, read the book of Judges. Here's the way it goes. Uh, for 40 years, we're going to do wicked and evil in the sight of God. God sends a judge along or a judgment against the people, and they cry out to God after 40 years of being punished, and they repent from their idols, and then they worship God for 40 years, and then they repeat the whole thing all over again. That's the judges. I mean, it's just idol worship, punishment, repent. Idol worship, punishment, repent. And God's like, you guys, come on, let's just let's get it together. And the reason is, is because they had not followed the, in obedience God in driving out the nations that had these, these idols in their, in their own homes. Now you're thinking to yourself, why is it so bad that God would actually have Israel annihilate certain nations, people, completely wipe them out? Sounds a bit harsh, doesn't it? Well, just think about it this way that if we were doing some of the idol worship that was going on in those little nations that were in the promised land in Israel, what they would be doing is they would be sending their priest into that classroom, into that classroom, and into that classroom where we have our little children, and they would take those little kids out to this huge fire, and they would slit their throats, and they'd sprinkle the blood on everything. Then they would take those little babies, those little children, and they would throw them into the fire, sometimes alive, and burn them to death or burn them up. Then they would take these little girls right here and these teenage girls over here, and they would say, you are no longer going to be with the rest of the people. You are going to come and serve in the temple of our God, and you're going to be a prostitute there. Can you imagine such debauchery? And God says, even if a smidgen of that is left in my country, for my nation, that will pollute the people that I have called apart for myself. And so he said, you have got to get rid of it all. And the bad news is, Israel didn't. And so... 
hundreds of years of this going on. Finally, God has had enough. And at this point, you have two nations. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is the tribe of Judah. And the northern kingdom are the other 11 tribes. And the, the idolatry that's been going on in the northern kingdom, kingdom has absolutely been going on and they just turn a blind eye to what God has called them to be, set apart for him. And so God absolutely destroys the northern kingdom at the hands of the Syrians. The Syrians come in and they wipe them out. And guess what? The northern kingdom never recovers from that. And you would have thought that the southern kingdom, Judah, would have taken notice of what God did with their northern brothers and said, we need to stop worshiping idols. We need to stop idolatry and the practice of worshiping idols. But they didn't. They didn't learn a lesson from somebody else. They had to learn it the hard way. And so what God did is he brought the Babylonians in and the Babylonians brought punishment to the to the southern kingdom, for 70 years, they were in subjection to the Babylonians and they were slaves to them. And after 70 years, they repented and they cried out and God heard their cry and he brought them out of the the Babylon captivity and set them free. And at that point, it was at that point, Judah never worshipped another idol again. God had to do something drastic to clean up the idols. Now, here's the, here's the interesting thing that is, if you read through the Old Testament, you might conclude that idolatry was a problem only in the Old Testament. But that's not true. Because Paul had dealt with that issue extensively with some of his letters to the churches that he had planted and then sent letters to. For instance, the, letter, the, the church he planted in, in Corinth, the Corinthian church. He reminded them what the difference is between an idol and God. 1 Corinthians 8 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know an idol has no real existence, and that there is, is one, no, no God but one. He's telling them, all these idols that you see around your city, they're just wood, straw, Stone, whatever it is, I created that stuff, and now you're worshiping something that I created. I am the one true God. That's what Paul was telling them. To the Ephesus church, he gave them a small list, not complete, but a small list of sins that create separation between us and God. Ephesians 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then he repeated the same message to the Colossians church, Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see that? That when you start to covet something somebody else has, or something you don't have, you've just created an idol. And so what we thought maybe was was not a big issue in the modern church today, I think might be a bigger issue than it was in the day when they had temples for, for for gods and goddesses, small g, idols. Today, we've got so much stuff. I mean, we have stuff. And listen, I'm the first one to admit it. We got stuff at our house we're trying to get rid of. 
I need like six dump trucks to come up to my house, and we'll just pitch stuff. We've got to do it tomorrow before Lorinda gets home, though. <laughs> but we've got stuff, and we've got all this stuff. And then what happens is we see our neighbors or our really good friends, and they've got stuff, but they've got newer and better stuff than the stuff we have. And so what do we want? We want their stuff. We want the newer and the better stuff. And so we go in like this stuff that's still good and it still operates and it's still okay. We're going to get rid of this stuff so that we can get the latest and greatest stuff. And guess what? The, the, all of these, these manufacturing companies, they play right into our hands on all of that stuff. Because I got a new iPhone 8, whatever it is, because it was the newest and the latest and greatest. But the day that I got it, all of a sudden, no, number 10 is better than this. I'll take this piece of junk and throw it in the river. Or, or we've got the, the snow machine from 2012, but the 2018 is like mind-blowing fast, and it's got all this crazy goods, and, and we just can keep going on and on and on on all the stuff that we accumulate into our homes. And the problem is, is that when we do that, when we start to think that my life is going to be better if I can just get my hands on you fill in the blank. Because if I get that, my life is going to be better. As soon as you have that thought, you're dreaming of a day when things are going to be better because you're going to accumulate something else that's going to make your life better. You've just gone into idolatry. Because you think this thing's going to make me happy or it's going to bring me joy. It will complete me. I'm going, to be, I'm going to be totally satisfied with this. I will not need another one as long as I live. And the problem is, as soon as you buy the thing, like 36 hours to a week later, you have buyer's remorse. You're going, what have I done? That was the stupidest thing in the world. How could I be so stupid? Well, because the advertisers know how stupid you are. And they play into your stupidity. And you buy it every time. So it's, it's, it's those things that go on in our lives. So here's... Once again, in Psalms 135, it says this. It's, it sounds like, almost like the 115. It says, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of the human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Now listen, God always talks about something that is living because it has breath. That's how we know God is alive, because what did he do? He breathed into existence the universe. He breathed life into Adam. He's the one that breathes life into us and sustains our lives. And so when we start to daydream about things, that's the moment that we make those good things into an idol. The dream about a house, a car, a level of income, maybe because I'm going to get a spouse or I'm going to have children or a level of success, anything else that takes most of our attention, we have just made that good thing an idol. You know what the really sad part to me is? And, and I know it's really sad to God too. And by the way, I'm not pointing my finger at you, but I'm pointing my finger at myself. Because this whole thing on idolatry hits home so hard. But, but one of the places where we find idolatry, biggest places we find idolatry, is in marriages and in the home. Because have you ever heard someone say, I idolize my wife. She's the apple of my eye. 
Now, I mean, that's all good sentiment, but there's a truth in that that is probably dangerous because all of a sudden we might be saying something like, I don't know what I would do without her. I don't know how I could go on without her. And as soon as we say that, that woman has become an idol in our life or that man, and and we set them up for failure. And the reason why the divorce rate in the United States is so high is because there are so many people who have made idols out of their spouses and their spouses will never deliver to them what they think this idol that they've made out of them will deliver. They are doomed to failure when they idolize their spouse and set them above God because no one will satisfy you like God. Here's the crazy thing about idols. It's some of the best things that God has given to us. You know what some of the best gifts that a husband and wife ever have that God gives to them? Children. But as soon as those children become everything to us and we idolize our children and they can do no wrong and we'll do whatever we can to bend over backwards to make their life great, then what we've done is we've created a a culture of children that are entitled to everything. And then we turn around and these poor, these cute little Johnny and Susie, they're just the best thing ever. They're the smartest kids that have ever walked on the planet and they'll be president or an astronaut or a brain surgeon. Maybe they'll be all free. (laughs) And we've created these little monsters that are idols in our lives and guess what they do? They destroy us. And God's heart is broken over that because he's saying, I've given you the best gift I can give you to have a child. That's, it, it, it's got to be a great gift because God calls us his children. And yet we let these children become the idols in our lives. And you've got homes that are messed up. As I said this earlier, idolaters do four things with their idols. They love them, meaning that they look to their idol for significance for life. This is true of all human relationships. Like I said, if I love my wife more than I love God, she has become more significant than God. If I look at my kids to fulfill my life and bring me meaning and purpose, then I've taken a gift from God and made, it a, made that gift a small G God in my life. Here's the other thing they do, idolaters do with their idols. They trust them, meaning they look for security from their idol, believing that this thing, whatever it is, will give them more security than they have right now because they're lacking some kind of security, whether it's in their their finances, maybe it's in, in their job or whatever it is, they lack security and so they go after this thing and they want the thing that, that is there to be the security for their future and there's only one thing that's a, that can secure your future and his name is Jesus. There's nothing that will bring you the security that you want. Just ask all the people that lost all they had in 2007, 2008. When everything crashed, that, there's no security in that stuff. The third thing is, is that they obey him, meaning that wherever this idol leads them, they're going to follow obediently. The fourth thing is they serve them, meaning that they get their identity from the idol. This is the part that is really quite um, chilling to me, is the fact that 
This is the number one idol that pastors have to deal with. They get their identity from being a pastor or from preaching. The very thing that God's gifted someone to do, to get up and deliver the word and say, thus saith the Lord, can be an idol in their heart because all of a sudden that becomes their identity. You could be a small group leader and your identity is found in a small group, leading a small group. You could be an elder. Your identity is in being an elder. You can be on the worship team, and you find your identity in leading worship because you've all of a sudden taken this thing that God has said is to be used for His glory, to bring Him honor, and to lift His name up, and it's in our heart, we put on this face. We make it look like, I don't have an idol in my heart. After all, I'm serving in ministry in this particular area, and look Look, I'm really humble about it. And, and I don't really have an idol in my heart. But yet, that thing is hidden deep in the recesses of our heart. And God is going to make that thing come to the foreground. And it will be what it is. And it will turn to a bitter pill in your mouth. Because God is not going to stand for you to take whatever he has given you as a gift and turn it into an idol factory. Not going to happen. Here's the problem with our idols. They're liars and they are deceivers. Because they're going to lie to you and tell you that you'll find your satisfaction in this thing, whatever it is. You're going to find your identity, your hope, your everything is going to be found in this thing that is promised to deliver something to you. The, the thing is, is, it's made a promise to deliver something to you. It can never deliver. Because it's just a thing. And, and usually, the, the people who become idols in our lives, they've never asked to be an idol. We've just made them that. And then what we've done is we've put a burden on them that they can never deliver what we're expecting from them. God's salvation does not come in response to a changed life. We don't change our lives from being idol worshipers to being God worshipers. Here's what changes it. A changed life is in response to our relationship with God. We step in as children of God. We love God. We know Jesus as our Savior. He's forgiven our sins. He has set us free. And out of that, then our lives are changed. God brings the transformation to our lives because we have submitted ourselves to his authority because we have taken the idols of our life and we have smashed them on the at the foot of the cross and we have said it is only you and you alone that I will serve for the rest of my life what changes have transpired in your life because of your relationship with Christ What has God done in your heart? What idol has he brought out? Maybe even today as we're sitting here listening. There's still something that you've been hanging on to. There's still something in your life that's deep in the recesses that God keeps nudging at you. And he's saying this is an idol in your heart. You love this thing more than you love me. I really hated preparing this message. Because God always delivers. And he took the spotlight and he 
was shining it deep in the recess of my heart to identify the things that have become idols in my life. This is the thing about an idol. Once you uproot that thing and you take it and you smash it at the foot of the cross, you're not finished. Because next week, you think you've smashed that thing, it's never going to come again, but there's a little bit of a seed of that thing that has pounced back into your heart and all of a sudden, all it takes is a little bit of water from the wrong can and that thing grows into another idol in your heart. And so we are constantly having to guard our hearts from manufacturing idols. We have to do that all the time. And, and here then is the practical answer to our own idols, to the idols in our lives. They're not spiritually safe. They're not to have and to hold. We can't do that because they will mess us up. We need to offer them up. We need to find a way to keep them from clutching into our lives and for us clutching them too tightly. Listen, I'm not saying get rid of them all. Don't don't go and divorce your wife because you think she's an idol. (laughs) You don't commit another sin to deal with your sin. You let Jesus deal with it and you put Jesus in the right place. We have to know to be assured that God so loves cherishes and delights in us that we can rest our hearts in him for our significance, for our security. He's the one that's going to be leading us to the right places. He's the one where we find our identity and knowing that he can handle anything that happens in our life. There is nothing too difficult for God to to do. And I believe God is calling us to repentance this morning, to have a complete change of mind, perspective, disposition, and orientation and motivation about what is driving my life. We have to uproot the idols that have stolen our hearts from the affection of God and have taken control over us. So when the worship team comes up and we're going to sing the next song, I don't want you to stand up. I don't want you to talk to your neighbor. I don't want you to think about the offering buckets that are coming. I want you to focus your attention on God and I want you to ask him through his spirit to speak into your life. And if there is an idol in your life that the spirit of God would reveal what that idol is in your life and you can do one of two things. You can make the place where you are sitting the the altar where you take that idol that's been revealed to you and you place it at the feet of Jesus and you give it to Jesus and you say, you handle this thing because I cannot. Or you can come up here and make a public declaration that the idols that have been controlling your life are no longer going to control them and you're going to make a declaration before God and his people and you're going to get down on your knees up here and you're going to deal with your idols. But I don't want you to be moving and talking and anything else. If you want to sing because the Spirit is leading you to sing out of joy for what God has done in your heart, then sing. But if the Spirit of God is calling you to repentance, then repent. Our prayer should be this. I see that you've been calling me to live my life without something I never thought I could live without. But if I have you, I have the only wealth, the only health, the love, the honor and security that I only need. And that comes from you, Jesus. Lord, help me to see that you are all I really need and lead me away from the idols to know you as being all sufficient in my life. That should be our prayer. So as John says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen? Our Father, you have been speaking to us and through us and in us this morning. 
You have brought things to our minds. You have revealed things to us that, that you alone know. You're the one that is going to help us move out of the place of the idols that we've created in our own hearts to coming back to the place where we worship you and you alone. And so I pray specifically this morning that your spirit would work on your people. That it wouldn't be the things of my life. That it wouldn't be the things that I've said. That it wouldn't be anything about me, but it would be by the spirit of Jesus who has come in and has spoken and has nurtured in the hearts and the lives of every man, woman, and child the things of God that are so dear and near to your heart that they become near and dear to our heart and that we would put all the other things in their proper places and hold you up as God alone and that we would worship you with all of our being, with all of our heart, with all of our mind, that we would worship you with our finances, we would worship you with our home, that we would worship you with our jobs, that we would worship you with our families because those things are secondary to you. So come, minister in our hearts. Teach us to obey your commands. We ask that at the beginning, that we would have our ears open to hear what you have to say, that our eyes would be open to see you at work in our lives. And so, God, bring the evidence of your work to reality to us. We pray these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.